You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. start with a story. Maybe you've heard this story before, but uh, there's a story of a, of a man who was a writer, and he lived near the beach, and he had this favorite spot on the beach along the ocean where he liked to go and just gain inspiration and think and write. And uh, after a, a huge storm that hit uh, his community, he went down to the beach just to kind of see the condition of things, and the whole beach was covered with starfish. The storm had just thrown all of these starfish up on the land, and uh, they were all stuck on the beach, and there was just so many of them. Uh, and they're drying out. They're going to die on the, uh, on the beach there. And so he's looking out. You know, what a shame. Uh, you know, there's just no way to get all of these starfish back into the water. And he sees a little boy down the way. The little boy is stopping every once in a while and throwing starfish into the ocean. And, uh, and he just starts to kind of scoff at this kid. This kid, there's no way. There's so many starfish. There's no way he's going to be able to make any sort of difference here. So eventually he crosses paths with the boys and goes, boy, what are you doing? So I'm throwing starfish. I'm rescuing starfish. And... Um, and the guy says, there's so many. There's tens of thousands of them. There's no way you're going to make any difference. And the little boy picks up a starfish and throws it in and goes, it made a difference for that one. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful story there. Like sometimes I think as we look at this, these verses that we've been looking at, at the needs of widows and orphans and how that's true religion, I think just the sheer scope of the needs of people and in the world can cause us to be paralyzed and maybe even a little cynical about what it would look like to actually engage in the needs of people, and particularly widows and orphans, as the Bible calls us. I love what one pastor said. He said, do for one what you wish you could do for all. That's one way to kind of get over the paralyzation of just the massive amount of needs around us. Where do we start? I don't know if I can get that involved. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. And so as we continue to look at James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, today we're going to look at the theme of visiting widows in affliction. Uh, we talked about this, these verses for two weeks already. We talked about just the overall text um, and what that means and where that is going uh, towards, what it means to visit um, and true religion and all of that. And last week we looked at uh, what it looks like visiting orphans in their affliction. Actually, today is Orphan Sunday. So around the country there are many uh, churches and Christians that are featuring the needs of orphans today. We did that last week, and so uh, we're going to look at the next phrase there. In, uh, in James 1, 27, uh, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So visiting widows in affliction is the theme of our, our time together. James 1, 26 and 27 says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now again, if we were to go look at the larger context of Scripture, and even just the context of James, we're not talking about doing works in order to earn God's favor. What we're talking about is we're talking about a person who has been born of the Word by God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has received that Word in their heart, as it says earlier in James, and now wants to be a doer of the Word. What does it look like when we've been born of God and that root begins to grow? What pops out of the ground? What shows itself in the world? What does the Christian life look like in public space, in, in three-dimensional time and, uh, and, and interaction? What does that look like? And what God is looking for is, is people who engage in the needs of the world in the same way that He engaged our needs. Just as God visited us, He's calling us as His people to be visitors 
of those who are in need around us. And so um, this, this theme of widows, orphans, the foreigner, the, the prisoner is throughout Scripture. We've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. That it's just all throughout Scripture that God has a heart and identifies with the needy. And so visiting widows in affliction. Uh, I want to look at this in four ways. One is widows in the Old Testament, very briefly. And then widows in Jesus, widows and the church in the New Testament, and then widows in Redeeming Grace Church before I close with just a little bit of a charge from John chapter 13 on serving um, what it means there. So widows in the Old Testament. So where is this, this theme of caring for widows, visiting widows in their affliction? It's not only in the New Testament, it's also in the Old Testament. We saw all those passages last week about orphans. Well, all of those are also, we could just cover them all again. We won't today, but we could just cover all those again because there's this tag of widows and orphans together. Those who are vulnerable, those who don't have uh, what they need, those who have been victimized by the world. And widows in the Old Testament, we have a few examples uh, in addition to those passages we looked at last week. We have Tamar, who's a widow and who's exploited by the children of Israel, by Judah's sons, and then uh, actually gets pregnant by her father-in-law, Judah. And uh, is just, uh, it's terrible, the situation that Tamar is in, losing two husbands because of their wickedness. God actually puts them to death. And then, um, and then her father-in-law getting pregnant by her father-in-law. Uh, and yet, God cares for the widow, cares for Tamar, and she gets to be part of the line of promise that brings about Christ. God redeems this widow who's been exploited and misused. The whole book of Ruth is about the care of widows. You think of Naomi and Ruth lose their husbands, and they're vulnerable, and they're having to beg for food, and they find righteous Boaz, and Boaz redeems them, and they get to be part of the lineage of King David. God's heart for redeeming or, uh, widows and caring for them. In 1 Kings 17, the great prophet Elijah takes time to care for the widow of Zarephath, whose son has passed away, who is, uh, who is without food, without oil, and, uh, and God provides for them. Elijah takes his time. The man of God takes time to care for this widow and raise her son uh, from the dead. Elisha, the successor of Elijah, uh, finds a woman starving and, uh, and, and blesses her with this supernatural overflow of oil. And so this idea of caring for widows is featured several times throughout the Old Testament in really particular ways that shows that God has a heart. He sees. He sees the needs of those who are hurting. So throughout the Old Testament, we see this heart of, of, um, of God for the widow and the orphan. Um, widows and Jesus. This is an article I found by a guy named Jim Morgan. I just took some select passages from it. But when you look at Jesus, you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just look for this theme of, of widows or those that would be in the category of vulnerable, vulnerable women in particular, in a, in a culture where that's a very difficult spot to be. And we see these things, Jesus defends them. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, are known for devouring women's houses and for making a show of lengthy prayers, and that they will be punished for the way that they have treated widows. So Jesus defends the widows. Jesus praises widows. He praises them. Calling his disciples together, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. She put two pennies. Totally insignificant. Not even worth the trip. And she gives it, and Jesus goes, Did you see what she did? Did you see what this widow did? He praises the widow. He heals them. Jesus went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and asked Jesus to help her. And we don't know for sure if Simon's mother-in-law was 
uh, was a widow, but just do the math, she likely is. She's likely in a vulnerable spot and with a high fever, so uh, it's a woman in need. He honors their requests. People are bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, and he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. We don't know if that's necessarily a bunch of single moms, but certainly, if you just do the math, probably some, he had a desire to bless these children. Maybe they didn't have a father to bless them, and so he blesses them. I'm taking a little bit of liberty there, but you see the heart of Jesus, I think, for these vulnerable people. He performs miracles for them. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. she just lost the last family member she had, her dear son. And a large crowd from around the town was with her, and the Lord saw her. His heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry, and raises the boy. He listens to their prayers in Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a parable about a widow who is in a town who kept coming to the king with a plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. And this parable is used to describe this is how God is. God will answer the prayers of those who come to him. And then he loves and cares for his own widowed mother. Most likely Mary is a widow. Joseph falls off the scene. Jesus' dad, earthly father, adopted father, is, uh, is off the scene after Jesus is 12 years old. And so his mother is there at the crucifixion. And you just think of all that's going on in Jesus' mind and heart and soul on the, at the crucifixion. The sins of the world are being placed on Jesus. The wrath of God is being absorbed. And he has this eye for his mom, his dear widowed mother. And he takes a few minutes while on the cross, while dealing with humanity's sin problem, to go, hey, I need to find a way to make sure mom's cared for. And in John chapter 19, he says to John, his disciple, here is your mother. And from this time on, this disciple took her into his home. So even from the cross, Jesus was caring for his dear widowed mother by making sure that she was cared for. So we see that Jesus has a heart for and is thinking about the widow, the woman who has no one looking out for her. Widows in the church. So as Jesus ascends into heaven, after resurrecting, ascends into heaven, His Holy Spirit comes upon God's people. Uh, Are they? What do they do? What is their concern for widows? We looked last week that the care for orphans kind of continued on for many centuries and has been a feature of Christianity. Well, what about widows? We could say the same things about widows, those who are in a vulnerable spot. But there's two key passages I want to spend a bulk of our time looking at today as we think about what it looks like to visit widows in their affliction. We've got two passages that speak to that. In Acts chapter 6, which is just a couple of chapters, just not very long after the Spirit has come, um, the church has begun. Now there's this new covenant that is going. And in Jerusalem, there are thousands, maybe some say as many as fifteen to 20,000 people that are now Christians in the city of Jerusalem. This church is huge by the time we get to Acts chapter 6. And we have an issue. We have an issue in Acts chapter 6. So if you would turn there, I think it's also on the screen as well. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so this church is just really expanding like crazy. The gospel is going forth in the power of the Spirit in Jerusalem on just an unbelievable level. And here's what happens. We have our first indication of trouble in this church. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, this is the Jewish people who speak Greek, there was two kinds of Jewish people in Jerusalem. There were those who speak Hebrew, the traditional language of the Hebrew people. And then there were those that had kind of adopted more of a Greek culture and uh, were maybe even some of them converts out of Greek, 
whatever, but they're speaking Greek. So there's this natural division between Hebrew-speaking and Greek-speaking, or maybe Aramaic-speaking and Greek-speaking. And so there's natural divide in the church. The gospel is reconciling people from all these different places. So just trying to give you a sense here of the tensions that could arise in this church. The Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man, uh, or Stephen, 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 a man of, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte. Tight, <laughs> a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So early on in the life of the church, there seems to have been developed right away a program for caring for widows. It's called the daily distribution. So each day the church had resources that they had gathered that everybody had contributed into. And that was, there was a program by which they then dispersed that to make sure that the widows had food. Widows don't have much of a way to provide for themselves. And so from the very beginning, here we are in Acts chapter 6, there's already a program for caring for widows. And what's happening in this church is that the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking widows, are being, uh, are being neglected. The Hebrew speaking, there's, getting, there's becoming a preference, a preference issue within the church. But I just think this is pretty amazing that from the outset, the Holy Spirit comes. These people are beginning to follow Jesus. They've still got a lot of things to work out. The church is brand new. But what was automatic by chapter 6 is that we have to care for widows. Like that's just a non-negotiable. We have to care for widows. By Acts chapter 6, there's already a program to care for widows. And it's already been going long enough that now it has issues. <laughs> There's, there's holes in the system. There's issues in the, in the program that needs to be dealt with. So I, I think that's just an amazing thing to think about. So we notice that from this text, widows were a priority from the beginning to make sure that they had what they needed. The body of Christ caring for the vulnerable among them was just an automatic. Also, we notice here that widows had a voice. That when they were being neglected, they could be heard, right? They had a voice in the church which this is mind-blowing for the culture that they're in. Widows don't have any voice. They don't have any power. They don't have any money. They don't have any influence. They don't have any credibility. But the fact that they could, in this church of potentially 15, 18, 20,000 people, could go, hey, uh, I'm being overlooked. And the whole church would stop what it's doing to say, that's not right. We need to deal with that. These widows had a voice, which tells you something about the church is that even the lowest, weakest, least prominent had a voice. And in those days, that would be the widow. They would be the one that would be most likely to be overlooked, to be discarded, and no one would notice. But not in this church, not in Acts chapter 6. The widows also were right to expect help. They were right to expect this of the church. That if these people claim the name of Christ... This need isn't automatic. They were right to neglect that. Notice that when the issue comes to the apostles, they don't sit there and debate whether or not these widows, these woke widows, thinking they should just get 
free stuff for nothing, you know, like they should get a job like the rest of us. And they, no, no. It was automatic that the disciples, the apostles already said, nope, they're right. We need to address this. They could appeal. They were right to expect help. Neglect of any one of the members was not okay and was an apostolic concern. That's what we see. The neglect of widows was an apostolic concern. They were right to bring this to the apostles, and the apostles were right to take some of their busy time to go, we've got to address this. We've got to address the physical needs of this particular body. Also, we see that widow care was a responsibility of the whole church. So the the apostles are rightly concerned that if we just become a social ministry, Like if we just become about doing social action in the world, we'll never get around to preaching the gospel. And we as the apostles are the ones who have been with Jesus. We need to spend our time doing the teaching work. So what we're going to do, the apostles said, is put this back on the church. These are your widows. You need to care for them. Now we will lead you. We'll give you direction. But this is your responsibility. This is not just the responsibility of the leaders. This is the responsibility of the whole body. Now, you're talking about a massive group of people. Like, all the disciples are gathered together. How do you have a meeting with 15,000, 18,000 people, right? This is a massive meeting, but the apostles go, you know what? This is a legitimate need. This is a real problem. This deserves attention. And we must make sure that preaching of the gospel is always first and foremost. But this kind of neglect is also not acceptable at the same time. Does that make sense? So he puts it back on them and says, hey, why don't you pick? So the, the apostles do such good leadership here. They put it back on the congregation, and they say, choose from among yourselves seven men who will administrate this to make sure that there's equity. And so somehow, between 15, 18, 20,000 people, they choose seven men. They choose seven men who will then become the facilitators of making sure that there's equity in the body, that no one's overlooked, that physical needs are met. And we have what I think is the beginning of deacons, the institution of deacons. This idea of servants. Deacons means servant. That's all the word means is servant. So this official office in the church is developed by the Holy Spirit, a gift given to the body, the gift of deacons, out of a concern for widows. Now, I think that the work of deacons can go far beyond widows. I think it really can be anything where the body has a need that would distract from the teaching of the word but still needs to be addressed. You have the elders who give themselves to spiritual and soul care and, uh, and teaching. And then you have this other wing. You have this other office by which physical needs can be met. Because Jesus did both healing and teaching with always a priority towards teaching. So if the church has the same ministry as Jesus, his hands and feet, his body, then also you would see a priority of teaching and soul ministry, but also not a lack of concern for physical care. Does that make sense? You tracking with that? So this is an amazing moment where this church is faced with something that could literally fracture it. If this was uh, the United States, if this was like 2022, you know what we would do? We would go ahead and split that church, and we would have Greek church, and we would have Hebrew church, and we would have the church that they feel comfortable with. But they, within their body, went, no, we need to stay unified as a church, and we need to address this issue together. We're not going to let this racial language barrier break us apart. We're going to address this together. And then what you see, what happens is that this care for widows and this interplay between congregation and leadership to meet the needs of the body, particularly widows, creates this beautiful vibrancy. It says in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, 
and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The care for widows increased their evangelism. When they saw how leaders and congregation worked together to meet the needs of the vulnerable in their community, people began to see the gospel for what it was. And the priests who have a whole Levitical system for caring for people went, yeah, the church does it better. The Holy Spirit fills a people, they follow a resurrected Jesus, and there's no needs in this church of 20,000 people. How is that possible? Because they knew, what they, they knew who they were, everyone had a voice, the leaders knew what the priorities were meant to be, and the congregation took responsibility. And what's amazing is when they picked these seven men, all of them have Greek names. So they picked the kind of men that these widows would know and trust. They took such consideration of these Greek widows that were being overlooked that they went above and beyond and said, you know what, we're going to pick Greek-speaking deacons just to make sure that you know that you're loved, just to make sure that you know that you have someone that you can trust, that you can talk to. And so just an abundance of grace in this congregation as they worked through something that would split nearly every other institution. This, this is a huge issue. This is a huge issue. Will they punt and just go, widows, widows don't matter that much? Will they split and become two different churches with their different languages and cultures? Or will they submit themselves, talk together, and will they meet the needs of the body? And will they follow the lead of their, of their leaders? And we see that the Word of God grew from this uh, experience. And it was all under the catalyst of, of this responsibility to care for the widows among them. Isn't that amazing? First Timothy 5, the second passage. Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, who's pastoring probably in Ephesus at the time, and just giving him basic pastoral instructions, okay? Lots of really important stuff. In fact, qualifications for elders and deacons are in Matthew or, uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so just a couple chapters later, look at this. I just want to show you this. This, is so, this would be way more than we can untangle today, but I just want you to look at the care for widows that's communicated behind this. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 10. Do not rebuke an older man... But encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You see this beautiful family dynamic that the church is supposed to have. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow, that's, that is a countercultural statement. Honor widows who are truly widows. They should have a special place in your congregation. They don't have a special place in the world, but they do in the church. They have a special place. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness in their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. So the church's care is not to undermine the nuclear family. It's to strengthen it, support it, encourage it, right? The first line of care should come from your biological family. So this is not the church countering that, but encouraging that. Verse 5, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. And she who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. Ooh. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a big statement. To claim Christ and then not care for your immediate family, that is to deny Jesus, he's saying. Your faith is worthless, as James would say. 
Verse 9, let a, woman, or let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality and washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger women, women, widows, <laughs> for when their passions draw them away from Christ and they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying that they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their households, and give the adversary no accusation for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them, and let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Okay, there's a whole lot of stuff to untangle there. We won't have time for all that. I want you to just see the big picture. But you see the big picture that Timothy, the care for widows is a really important ministry. It's a really important part of the church. And what you need to do is you need to make sure that people are genuinely in need. We don't want the church to be taken advantage of. We want it to be those who are genuinely looking to follow Jesus, genuinely need help. We want to do all that we can as a church to make sure that the family structures around them, if they can bear the burden, they should, so that the church can be free as much as possible to help those that really don't have anyone to help them. But the big picture here is that you are inclined to and responsible to help, to help those who have need. And you're supposed to do really important discipleship along the way. The goal is not just to make sure that they have a home and food, but to make sure that their souls are cared for, that they're serving the body, that they're working, that they're not gossips or busybodies, that they're controlling their desires because you care more, you care not just about their physical needs, but you care about their spiritual needs. I, like, I love what, what John Piper says is that Christians care about all suffering and especially eternal suffering. I love the picture of that. We'll talk a little bit more about this, about how sometimes the proclamation of the gospel is put at odds with engaging in social ministry in the community, right? As if one is liberal and one's conservative, when really we see both in Jesus. We see both in Jesus, but the priority always being the preaching of the gospel and the care of souls, right? And I think right here we see both. We see both. Now, getting into the whole whether they should be 60 and all that kind of stuff, I think he's giving some counsel there that's particular to Timothy's situation. But I do think that we can draw some principles from this. We don't have the opportunity to get into all that. But I think this, first of all, assumes a multi-generational church where we see each other fundamentally as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, right? This family dynamic is supposed to be ordinary in the church. You see that in verse 1, right? Treat the older men as fathers. Look up to them with respect. Listen to their advice and counsel. They've seen a few things. Treat the younger men as brothers. Your kid brother that you're looking out for, right? Treat the younger men as brothers. Treat the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters. In all purity, right? You should treat them as family. You've probably seen on the news all kinds of different like scandals where there's all kinds of sexual misconduct among pastors and spiritual leaders. And he's saying right here, like, we should see each other as family. See older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, not objectifying, not lusting, not, but as a family, right? Looking out for, protecting each other, not using each other. That's the dynamic here. In all purity, with all uprightness, with all appropriateness, and honor widows as truly widows, as if they were your own mother as if they were your own grandmother. The church really becomes the family of faith. 
So it assumes a multi-generational church, people in different life stages and situations. It's not all just college kids. It's not all just old people. It's a multi-generational church, right? Which is why I don't think a college ministry is a church. Because where's the widows? Churches should have some widows in it, right? There should be older brothers and younger women. And people you can treat as a father and people you can treat as a mother, people you treat as sisters. What should define the church is this family feel around the gospel where people of all different life stages and situations, all kinds of needs, all kinds of sin and brokenness, every different kind that you can imagine in your community is represented in the church and being brought together by the gospel. It also commands a family disposition toward each other. We already talked about that. There's a call for personal and family responsibility that we should hold one another accountable. Hey, if you've got kids and they're not taking care of you, then we need to step in and make sure that we help you with that. And if they just refuse to care for you, they're worse than an unbeliever. Maybe they are unbelievers. And then we'll care for you. But the church is always working to make sure that someone's cared for. Taking a special interest, particularly in those who might not have all the resources and relationships that they might need to really thrive. And then we see prescribed an intentional practice and process for caring for widows. Remember in Acts chapter 6? Right? There was a daily distribution. They had thought up a system to make sure that the physical needs were met. By Acts 6, church started in Acts 2. By Acts 6, they have a distribution program to make sure that that's the case. And I think, I think Paul is describing for, Pete, for Timothy the mechanics of what would be a distribution system to care for widows in their own church, right? Enroll those women. Like we have, I think, the word enroll, don't we? Let a woman, verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she meets these certain qualifications, which means there's some sort of program with standards and checking in and care. There's a systematic approach to make sure that no one is overlooked. We don't see that with any other group. We see that particularly as a feature for widows, right? See that as a feature for widows. And we see a very strict objective standard to avoid misuse and abuse. So that's what we see. Widows in the early church, we see a very intentional, thoughtful, careful, comprehensive, spiritual and physical caring for those who are vulnerable, those who don't have any other resources available to them in this way. So, Widows and Redeeming Grace Church, we live in a culture that doesn't particularly value older people, right? Everybody wants to look younger, act younger, be younger, right? And we have the call to be countercultural, to have, give special honor to those who are older, particularly those who are in this vulnerable state. So let me just give six, six potential calls to us of what I think we need in our church in order to care for widows. First, we need to see the widows among us. Do we even know any? Like if you just sat there and wrote down a list of people who would be widows. And let's expand, let's expand the term a bit. Because it's not just like literal widows, it's the situation of someone who's in need. So this could be brought into single moms, abused women in abusive relationships, women without Christian husbands are in some ways a bit widowed, divorced. Do we know any? Do we see them? Do we even know they exist? Do we know their names? Do we know their situations? Do we know of any widows in our membership? Any widows in our larder church community? Do we know the widows, the single moms in our neighborhood? Here, here's a, a thought. Have you ever taken an afternoon or an evening just to go visit a nursing home? 
Take your kids with you sometime. What a countercultural thing. What a countercultural thing. Do you know how lonely it is to be in your 80s or 90s sitting in a nursing home and no one visits you? No one has time for you. We're all so stinking busy. And then a funeral sneaks up on us and we go, what? I didn't get a chance to say, yeah, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to do that now, right? And there's nothing more countercultural than seeing a 13-year-old kid talking to an 89-year-old woman in a wheelchair laughing at the same jokes, right? Oh, what a beautiful countercultural, uniquely Christian thing. All you have to do is ask this question, tell me about your life. And then you'll hear the response that says, well, what do you want to know? What were you doing when you were my age? How did you grow up? You'll never have to say another word for two hours. <laughs> and you'll hear the most amazing stories that are just sitting. So much wisdom is just sitting in wheelchairs, in, in old folks' homes, in the chairs of this room, right? So much there with just a couple questions. So do we actually see the widows that are among us? Number two, we need to see widows' troubles and needs as our troubles and needs. It has to become personal. I think we see that in 1 Timothy 5. We see that in Acts chapter 6. They took it personal. The fact that widows were being neglected, the apostles took that personal. Yeah, we got to address this. And we have other considerations as well, but we got to address this. And in 1 Timothy 5, the whole context is treating older women as mothers. So we have to see the widow's troubles as our troubles. There can be layers of help. There might be someone better situated to actually help, but we all care. And we all take it personal. Third, I already kind of touched on this, but we need to hear their voices. Take time to listen. We saw that in Acts chapter 6, right? Take time to listen. I think that's assumed in 1 Timothy 5, that you're talking to them and that you know their reputation, you know their faith. And we're doing this that they may be known and feel known and that they may feel known and feel loved. That they might be that actually, but that they might actually feel that way. That my church loves me. My church really loves me. And they know me. And also that we may benefit from their wisdom, experience, perspective, maturity, and availability. Uh, some of the people who have probably most shaped me have been widows who I know I'm on their prayer list. Like, I've been to funerals, and the husband will come to me. I'm thinking of one in particular. Well, I guess she's not a widow anymore. But anyway, old, this older lady. And he's like, you are all over the place in her prayer journal. She has been sick for 10 years. She hasn't been able to leave the house. And so she just spends her time praying for you. It's like, oh, I knew that, but I didn't, like, really know that. So she wasn't a widow, but you get, the, you get my point there. Also, we need the office of deacon in our church. I feel the need of that. I feel the weight of the needs in our church. And I'm grateful that we have elders now, and they're starting to get their feet under them. I think we'll only benefit over time as we see our elders care for us better and better and more and more faithfully spiritually. But I feel the weight of the fact that uh, we need some people in this congregation that will step up and give themselves to making sure that the body is mobilized and meeting the physical needs of people in here. Not just widows, but anyone that's in need here. Any of the single moms, any of the those who are dealing with surgeries, we, we just have a real need for the office of deacon. So would you join me and the elders in praying for that? That's one of our agenda items in the new year is to spend some real time really thinking through how to lead you, the congregation, in that Act 6 kind of way. Let's choose among ourselves some people who will give themselves to this task 
so that our evangelism would be increased, so that people would know and feel loved, that the glory of Christ might be uh, magnified. Also, I think we need a robust benevolence fund and maybe even an enrollment program. I think we need to pray about the possibility of moving that direction, which means all of us might have to give a little more financially in order to make that work so that someone else, so that there's resources in the church to really genuinely help someone. Like, life is getting expensive. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how much more expensive life is getting? Now imagine you're a widow and you have medications and you have car repairs and you have these things that you can't do. So it's going to require the whole body taking enough of an interest in this and we've got to put that together. We don't have that as a church yet. But I, let's pray about that. Let's pray about what that would look like in our church. And then I think we also need to take it personal in that we need to intentionally open our homes and calendars to widows. Use your lunchtime at church to find someone. It doesn't have to just be a, a widow, but just anyone. Like, hey, would you come join us for lunch? Give rides to church or the doctor or the store. Hey, here's, here's a fun one. If you've got kids that are in ball games, invite someone to go to the ball game with you. Hey, would you like to go watch our kid? Fourth grade girls basketball is awful to watch, but it'd be fun to have you there, right? <laughs> it'd be fun to have you there, and we'll have a great time, right? You, you know how many people would take you up on that for sure, to come cheer? Like maybe they can't visit their own grandkids, but they could come be kind of a surrogate grandparent for your kid. You never know. They might say yes. They might say no. They might say yes. Write a note. Send flowers. Take them Christmas shopping. If you're someone that's good at fixing things, take your fixing things kit and go fix some things. Right? It could be physical things, that creaky door, that leaky faucet. It could be that lawn that needs mowed. It could also be things like helping set up a budget, helping set up an email address, maybe watching kids, providing childcare in some way. In other words, to use the words of James, find an affliction and meet it. True religion visiting, visit their affliction. Find an affliction and visit it. Take your resources and just fix it. Pay for gas, change their oil, mow the grass, clean their house. Listen to their stories and their advice. Ask them to help you with something. Right? It's hard to ask for help. Sometimes it's really dignifying to have someone ask you for their help, right? So I think James 27, oh, oof, sorry. James 1.27 includes a call to every single member here. Find a widow in your orbit church, work, neighborhood, family, and extend this invitation. Try this. If you don't have any other plans, we would love to have you join us for Thanksgiving. That would be my task this week. Find someone and say that to them. Make that ask to someone. They might take you up on it or they might not. Either way, they'll feel seen, considered, visited. They'll feel visited. I love what one commentator said, said, true religion does not merely give something for the relief of the distressed, but it visits them. It takes the oversight of them. It takes them under its care. It goes to their houses and speaks to their hearts. It relieves their wants, sympathizes with them in their distresses, instructs them in divine things and recommends them to God. And all this it does for the, for the Lord's sake. This is the religion of Christ. One spiritual leader named Reggie Osborne says this. It's a little longer quote, but it's moving. He says, when the service ends, the happy and the lonely go in separate ways. For widows, orphans, and outliers, the Sunday afternoon journey is back home to a portal in reality. 
For the lonely, it hardly matters whether they're opening the doors to a mansion of fine things or a hovel of poverty. Inside, it's a desolate place. Are these not Jesus' people? And our people too? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Jesus said, Here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. Loving his church is an opportunity to love Jesus himself. You cannot divorce the groom and his bride if every happy intact family among us took upon itself to initiate toward and welcome the lonely, making, those, making visible those around us who feel invisible what a joyful place our sanctuaries and our homes would be. So, would you do for one widow what you wish you could do for every widow? Find one and extend that to them in the name of Christ. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, we as Americans tend to come to a problem and say we need a plan. We need machinery. We need the right social policy. We need better tax law. We need the right educational system. We need technology. We need a plan, and then we'll work the plan. That has never been the main problem in the history of the world when it comes to poverty. The problem has never been that people do not know what to do. It's that people don't want to do it. Feeling guilty about this isn't enough. It's like, that's not actually going far enough, is what he says in this talk. Feeling guilty about this isn't enough. You actually have to want to do it. That's what makes it true religion, is the want to for the glory of God. Not just to do it because we should, but to do it because we want to. That's a change of the heart that can only come by the gospel. That's something that has to come from God. And in Jesus, that kind of change of heart has come, close quote. Where does this change of heart come from? This heart to serve those that might not have anything to offer you back, to serve to such an extent that it really costs you something, really takes away something you would like to do or like to spend. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a change that comes from the gospel. And we see in John chapter 13, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to do the ultimate act of service for people who can't do anything for him, right? He's about to visit them in a way that they've never been visited before. They don't even know it's coming. And as they gather around to celebrate one last Passover together, nobody wants to wash feet. They're all rivaling about who's the greatest. And to wash feet is the lowest, most demeaning thing in the world. And Jesus takes a towel. And look at what it says in John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So just think about, Jesus is thinking about how great he is and what a great calling he has. And that motivates him to do what? He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is God in the flesh washing donkey dung off of disciples' feet who are too good for this task, right? And they're scandalized. They can't believe this. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Make that guy do it. <laughs> Probably what he's thinking. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
That's an odd thing to say. Unless you let me serve you, you can't be one of my people. So if we're going to be the kind of people that serve others, we have to first be served by Christ, which means we have to be humble enough to receive him, to receive him as our Lord and Savior, to let him cleanse us of our sins. We have to let go of our pride and the reality that we can't do this ourselves. There's certain things that only God can do for us, which is cleanse of our sins and give us a new heart. And this heart is a heart of service. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Or Simon, <laughs> Jesus said, let the one who is bathed, he does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you. When he had washed their feet and put, out his, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that is who I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is his messenger greater than the one who sent him. So the, the question here is really, ultimately, the ultimate question really isn't about widows and how we serve them. That's a fruit of someone who has been served by Christ. And so, would you in this moment, maybe just bow your heads, and if you've not received the work of Christ for you, that's where you need to start. To acknowledge your sinfulness before God, your inability to clean yourself up, and to trust that God did send His Son take on a lowly position, a poor position. He fulfilled the law on your behalf, God's law. And then he went to the cross, taking your sin and shame and brokenness and poverty upon himself. He died for you, rose again. And if you'll put your trust in him, he will wash your feet of all the places you've been, all the things that you've done, all of it cleansed by Christ himself, and you will have a part of him. You can have no part of him until he cleanses you of sin, until you let him serve you. So that's number one. Number two, if you've done that, and now serving others feels like a burden to you, ask God for a change of heart. A change of heart. All of us are in different spots. All of us have different resources and availability. This isn't meant to be any sort of guilt, but to move beyond guilt, as Tim Keller said, to desire. Desire, you know, I want to do this because Christ has served me. If you need that change of heart, would you ask for it? And then lastly, maybe you actually feel like, I actually want to do this. Would you have conversations after church today or in the car and just dream up some ways that maybe you could take a step towards actually serving a widow, orphan, someone in need? Let's just take a moment to pray. And whatever it is that you need to deal with before God, pray that you would do that and that you'd be filled with joy as you respond to his word. And then I'll pray. Oh God, we see your word as we expand out from this one little verse and this one little phrase and look at this theme throughout Scripture of those in desperate need. God, we look at the widow and the orphan and we see ourselves, our spiritual state before you. 
no matter how successful we have been in the world, how good our lives might be in a physical sense, without Christ, we are nothing. We are truly in poverty. So Lord, help us to recognize our poverty, to come to you as a widow and an orphan needing a father and a husband. We thank you that in Christ you've given those things, so help us to receive you by faith. And God, also, may that receiving of you come as a package deal with a real heart for those who, who don't know you and those who have these physical situations where maybe because of their sin, maybe because of the sin of others, life is just broken, there's poverty, there's needs. Lord, may, may it be your people that are your hands and feet that would be the first to come and offer a cup of cold water in your name that whatever we did for the least of these, we did for you. And so Lord, help us to identify with those who are hurting and those who are in need and give us a desire to want to do it and joy in doing it, knowing that you see and you will reward it. And God, may uh, our care for widows and orphans cause your kingdom to increase that people would see something different about Redeeming Grace Church and the way we love each other, the way we love the world, that they would not be able to help but believe that Jesus is real and that he rose from the dead because I can't explain the love of these people apart from some sort of supernatural source. I don't see anything in the world that looks like this. So Lord, we pray that there would be a magnetism that draws people to you uh, through our true religion of visiting widows and orphans. God, help us to know how to do it. Give us the will to do it and the resources in your name. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.